Yeah, I think that this is the this is the number one side effect that I hear people tell me about when they have been meditating for a while and it's become part of their daily or regular routine is that they begin to notice their behavior and they actually begin to notice their prejudices and the things they do that they don't feel proud of and they also begin to notice how um how other people are. They actually begin to notice how other people are triggered and how other people are um spinning their own stories about what's going on. And so there's this sense of empathy that gets born. Hello, thank you for being with me today. Today's guest is Lama Kathleen Wesley who has been a student of Kempo Karthay Rinpoche since 1977. She participated in the first three-year retreat led by Kempo Rinpoche at the Karme Ling Retreat Center in upstate New York and thus earned the title of Retreat Lama. Now, as a Lama, Kathy serves as the Columbus, and that's in Ohio, Columbus Karma Thigsum Trolling as its practice coordinator and travels to other Buddhist centers throughout the country to teach. Kathy is a graduate graduate of Ohio State University with a bachelor's degree in journalism. She lives in Newark, Ohio with her husband, Michael Wesley. We talk about what it's like to be uh, a llama and what that word means. Uh, we talk about um, her lineage and tradition and her um, lineage of Buddhism and uh, what it's like... Uh, to live that life and how she got there, um, uh, some about her uh, high school days and college days, and then we get into the actual practice and living uh, of uh, and benefits of, of meditation from her tradition. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I geek out quite a bit because uh, you know I'm uh, I'm a all things spiritual geek and I've been dabbling in meditation for many, many years with, um, you know, varying degrees of success. So without further ado, here is my lovely chat with Lama Kathy Wesley. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Hey, Lama Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. All right. So let's get into this. Um, let, so you know a little bit about my show, I hope. But uh, if you don't, I'll go ahead and give you a little breakdown. So the name of the show is Vroom Vroom Veer. And um, the idea there is that Vroom Vroom is sort of like uh, autopilot. And I think you're familiar with that idea. Um, mm -hmm. And then a veer would be an awakening. Mm -hmm. And the lessons that we learn moving from vrooming to veering. So, okay. yeah, yeah. And I think that um, uh, your life story um, has lots of vrooming and veering in it. So let's get into it. Um, 
if we if you were to look at your your life through the lens of rooming and veering, um, what was one of maybe like your first young person big awakenings in your life? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I can't say that uh, I've had anything that was uh, particularly spectacular that's, that's happened okay. to me in my life, but uh, I think that I had uh, a, a childhood very much like uh, anybody else's. But for me, I think uh, there were two things that really stood out in my in my childhood, and one was my connection to nature through being uh, a Girl Scout and going on Girl Scout trips into nature and really being impressed by nature. And then the other things was the other things were really connected to my Catholic upbringing and going to church. So I would say that for me, I really got a lot out of being in nature and really being fascinated by the beauty of nature. And uh, I can't remember a specific aha moment in nature. Can't I mean I just can't remember anything specific. Right. Uh, in uh, but in church. I had a really great experience uh, going to church as a young person, and I was especially touched by the experience of First Communion. Lots of Catholic girls and boys, when they're six or seven, uh, take their First Communion, and that was a big deal for me. And I really had a sense of the presence of Christ, and that was a really great moment for me. That sense that, wow, this is real. You can really have a connection to something that's beyond yourself. So I guess you could say that my experience of nature and my experience of church were uh, eye-opening for me. That's. Uh, did you grow up in the Midwest or somewhere on the East Coast? I did. I yeah. did. I grew up in the Midwest uh, mm. in in Ohio. Okay. I grew up in Michigan. Mm-hmm. So I can totally relate to your childhood because, uh, yeah, my parents took took us camping every weekend. It seemed like when we were little kids. So yeah, I stomped around in the woods and really got into nature as a child too. Um, and then, you know, um, uh, back in those days, you know, I'm 46 now, so yeah, born in 69. And, and back in that day, and especially in a small town in Michigan, my parents were kicking me out of the house all the time, you know, get out. <laughs> so, you know, you know, we weren't really like allowed to stay in the house. We were always constantly running around outside, even when we were home. So yes, mm-hmm. definitely. I, 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 uh, I, I feel very at home in nature. Um, and then I, I grew up uh, in the uh, Lutheran tradition. Mm-hmm. So in that, I call that Catholic light. Um, we, had Catholic, mm-hmm. <laughs> we had Catholics and Lutherans in, in my small town in Michigan. Um, so very similar, you know, and I can also relate to, you know, I, I was, uh, what do they call it? They're not, uh, uh, what, they call them acolytes. That's like the, sure. the pastor's assistant did that check mark mm-hmm. <laughs> that was sure. a big deal yep so um and then i also um let's see here oh oh my big thing when i was a young kid was uh i had perfect attendance at sunday school <laughs> <laughs> and i was really good at memorizing you know so i was like the guy that would like the 23rd psalm yes i would just you know memorize everything right away so anyway that came in that came in handy later when i got into acting in high school but i digress okay so you and i we had some very um interesting beginnings and mm-hmm. similar so nice cross points there and mm-hmm. uh, and we'll go ahead and get the ohio michigan rivalry out of the way right away um oh sure sure <laughs> 
I, I hold I think no it's grudges. A, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, good idea. Yeah. I hold no grudges from anybody in Ohio. <laughs> but every time yeah. I, 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 yeah, you know, I've never been into the college sports thing. So um, whenever I talk to somebody from Ohio, though, they always like, oh, Michigan. <laughs> Uh, no. You're my it's rival. A, it's a, <laughs> it's, a uh, it's a it's a it's actually a conversation starter that a lot of people just use to uh, tease each other, and right. then once they finish teasing each other, they actually now have a bond, and it and it goes beyond that. Exactly. Yeah, I've never actually met anybody from Ohio that it was serious about it. It was always just the fun sure. side. Right. So when you moved into your college days, then I bet you you had some sort of veer sort of situation. I understand you went to school and you studied journalism. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, school was also pretty important to me. I loved school, and school was always, uh, I guess you could say that was an eye-opening experience. I enjoyed learning, and I especially loved reading, and literature was also a source of great, uh, uh, I guess you could say, eye-opening for me because I enjoyed literature. And so when I uh, went to college, I had by that time already decided what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. When I was six, I started writing stories about fictional children doing fun things like going to islands where animals could talk and so forth and so on. Well, that's fascinating. And, uh, and so I figured out pretty young that I wanted to be a writer. And after high school, I decided to go to whatever school would be could be cheaply attended by a, a Midwestern kid with no appreciable fortune. Right. And, uh, and so I went to Ohio State University where there was a good journalism program, and I really, really enjoyed learning about interviewing and learning about writing, and uh, it was a great experience going to college, but it was a very stressful experience. And by the time I was a senior in college, I had pretty much exhausted myself uh, with all of the excitement, social events, and yeah, so everything different. else you could possibly imagine about college. And I had gotten married when I was a sophomore, and so I had the stresses of uh, being a young adult, married, trying to work and go to school, and it was quite stressful. And at the same time, I had uh, decided, I mean, not really decided uh, on to stop going to church, but it had fallen by the wayside in the excitement to learn things in college and have a new social life. So, co so college had pretty much ruined my church going. And um, at that point, I had stress, but nowhere to go with the stress. So that was when I had a feeling of, I, I can't really call it desperation, but it was starting to feel like that. that I know I that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Something into my life. I needed to put something into my life that would allow me to de-stress. And that's when I took a yoga course, my very first Love foray yoga. into yeah. Eastern spirituality. That's great. Yeah. And I, I can say that uh, I think I've been doing yoga now pretty regularly regularly for like, uh, about a year, two times a week. And, uh, and now I'm hooked. I can't stop. Mm -hmm. I, I think even when I'm feeling like I don't want to go, I go anyway, 
because I, <laughs> I, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I hear you. You, you know that there's that little voice, you know, well, you know, you could just sit on the couch and drink wine and watch TV too. Sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> but I usually don't. So good for me. Um, yeah. Right. Yoga's got like a, um, it, there must be some sort of like uh, a yoga background process that's urging me to go right in my brain that yeah. if you do it long enough, it, it gets, it gets hooked in a good way. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. So that was like your first foray into anything meditative. So mm-hmm. is that kind of like, was that sort of like the, the first seed that, that got you uh, moving towards the path of Buddhism? Yes. I think uh, from a practical point of view, from a theoretical point of view, like all uh, young teenagers or young preteens in the 1960s, I was a fan of the Beatles, and they practiced Eastern spirituality and meditation. And right. I thought that, and I thought as a teenage Beatles fan, I thought that was pretty cool stuff. But of course, I'm in Columbus, Ohio at this point, and have no way to learn meditation. But it sounds like a really good idea. And so I formed the the wish to learn it, but really there's nothing to be done for that. So I just went uh, about my daily life and uh, thought about it as being something cool. But I didn't get to actually do meditation until I was a senior in college and took my first yoga course. Okay. All right. Great. So now at, at some point you got to meet a Tibetan monk. Now, how did that happen? Oh, sure. Well, uh, again... <laughs> Again, uh, when when a person uh, is interested in spirituality, they do a bit of a search yes. and they look for things. But when you're a busy college student, you, you don't really have a very large area to search. And so I was pretty much just going to my yoga class where the teacher would say things like, now close your eyes and relax and imagine that you're walking on a beach. And as you walk on the beach, you feel increasingly relaxed. And then on the beach, you meet a wise person and the wise person imparts uh, words of wisdom to you and a blessing. And I remember thinking about that saying, that is really cool. It really works. Um, How can I learn more? And so I read um, uh, a lot of the uh, New Age authors of the day, including Ram Das. Love Ram Das. Yeah, and yeah. he wrote, of course, the famous classic "Be Here Now," mm. and and uh, he also wrote uh, other books. And one of the books I was reading uh, after college, I worked for a weekly newspaper, my first job after college, and then I got a job in. April of 1977 at a daily newspaper in a small town called Newark, Ohio, about 35 to 40 miles east of Columbus. And that was where I um, really uh, continued my search. Believe it or not, they actually have yoga classes in a little town like that. <laughs> right. And we practiced yoga in, the, in an old uh, railroad freight uh, depot, which was about, oh, I don't know, my guess it was probably 20 by 30. It was about the size of a small mobile home, you know. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, and so when the trains would go by while we were doing our asanas, you know, the, the, the building would shake. It was that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, I was reading uh, Grist for the Mill, his oh, uh, Ram right, Dass's right. book. And in that book, he has a chapter called Lineage in which he says, 
well, look, folks, I got to confess to you, I created my own religion. I took one from column A, one from column B, and I mixed it all together, and I made my own faith. And he said, uh, but this is not what I recommend to you readers. To you readers, I recommend that you pursue uh, a genuine lineage, that you find a genuine spiritual lineage that traces its history back to an enlightened being and that you then study that lineage to its conclusion so that you can attain the same result. And I remember sitting in my car reading this, waiting for a city council meeting because I was covering the city council at that time. This would have been in the summer uh, of of. 1977 and thinking, wow, Ram Dass, you really hit the nail on the head. That's it. Now, how will I find a lineage in central Ohio, a genuine (laughs) lineage like this in central Ohio? So a few weeks after that, uh, there was a poster in my yoga place, uh, which was called The Yoga Place. and, uh, And it said that there was going to be a talk given by a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And of course, I said, "Well, I've got to give this a, I've got to give this a look." And because I was a reporter, I just called the phone number on the poster and talked to the man and his wife who organized the visit and said, "Could I interview the Lama for the newspaper?" And they said, "Sure." And so after the Lama came to town, which was a few weeks after I saw the poster, this would have been in September. Uh, 1977, I went to their small apartment in a little town named Heath, Ohio, which is right next to Newark, and an even smaller town than Newark, and went to their little apartment and met a Tibetan Buddhist monk who was there with an interpreter. And I got to interview him for the newspaper. And the, the best part of the whole thing was that I got to ask him a personal question at the end. I was very impressed by his answers to my questions, particularly the difficult questions I asked him about the status of women in some Asian countries. Right. I said, well, you know, I've been reading about Buddhist women in Asian countries, and I see how they're not treated the same as the men. Uh, what do you have to say about that? And he said, well, he said, we have to draw a distinction between religion and culture. And sometimes a person teaches something in a religion, but culture doesn't follow. And he said, this is what happened. And that the Buddha taught that men and women had an equal potential to reach spiritual uh, enlightenment or spiritual awakening, but that the cultures didn't, uh, didn't permit their spiritual practitioners to follow that teaching and that that produced inequalities. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, and every culture has, yeah. And that's a good answer. You know, Mm -hmm. I was Um, very impressed by that answer. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great answer. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. uh, basically recognizing the problem and not, you know, trying to sidestep it or anything, then yeah, that's a problem, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, right. And, and what I also appreciated about him was that he had this quality of what I would call um, uh, gentility. He was very gentle, uh, very soft-spoken, uh, but he, was also, he also projected a sense of inner strength that I found really wonderful. Um, and I said, wow, you know, whatever he's having, I'll have that. <laughs> and, yeah, I uh, know exactly what you mean when you meet these, like, yeah. quietly gentle, but, you know, sort of like Ram Das might call them fierce, right? 
<laughs> that you're not yeah. going to push them off of a, off of an idea, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so then, uh, I was uh, very, very impressed. And so at the end of the interview, I put down, uh, my pen and I said, look, uh, can I ask a personal question? And he said, certainly through his interpreter, of course. And, uh, and I said, well, I've been trying to learn meditation, but I don't know how to go about it. What would you recommend? And then he got this far away look in his eyes and he answered my question as though from a great distance. He said, uh, well, there's going to be a time in your life when you want to leave everything behind and go on a meditation retreat. And then he said, there's going to be a time in your life when you're back sort of swimming in your everyday affairs, but you will always remember what you learned on that meditation retreat. And uh, I said, well, thank you. That's wonderful. And I, w- I remember thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> okay. But then after that, he gave me some uh, basic pointers about meditation and so forth and so on, and, and also a little bit about Buddhist prayer. And, uh, but what's interesting, of course, about that is that uh, he was predicting, I see now that he was predicting 15 years in the future, that I would be uh, participating in uh, a three-year, three-month, three-day traditional Tibetan retreat in the United States. Uh, that's how I take that today. To, uh, when I look back at it today, I felt that he was predicting something going on in the future, even though I couldn't recognize it at the time. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> So did you actually train with that particular monk in Ohio? Yes, uh, that that particular monk uh it was uh he was known and still is as uh, Kempo Karthar Rinpoche or Kartar Rinpoche. Okay. And he was from the Karma Kaju tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. He had been sent to the United States in 1976 just the previous year to my meeting him by the 16th Jawang Karmapa uh, to start Karmapa's own Buddhist center in the United States. And he had, uh, this Kempo, Kartar, had been invited to come to Central Ohio by this young couple. And they were the beginnings of the Columbus, Ohio Karma Takes Him Choling Center, which is still in existence today. Wow. So, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so basically you got, you were there like uh, right at, right toward the beginning, you know, it didn't even exist yet when, when you met him, right? Or it had well, just started. Uh, the, it had just started the mm. New York, the New York City, uh, the, 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 the whole idea of Karmapa's centers in America, which uh, became known, uh, his center, uh, his main center in the United States was known as Karma Triana Dharma Chakra. And it was located in an apartment on West End Avenue in New York City. <laughs> okay. And then eventually became uh, a monastic building uh, that was constructed in Woodstock, New York. And so, but I met him when it was still in the apartment on West End Avenue, but I met him in Ohio. And the next following year, they uh, purchased the property in Woodstock, and I uh, met him uh, up at, at both uh, both in Woodstock and in New York City. So I got to see him just the following year there. But he came back to Columbus 
a couple of times uh, in September of uh, uh, 1977, and then he came back again in January of uh, 1978. And so he just he was coming uh, to Columbus frequently to nurture the small group of Buddhists, I mean, of American students of Buddhism, including me. So it was a real amazing time. So you worked then as a journalist for what, say, the balance that that 15 years? Yes, I did. In okay. fact, uh, I remained I remained at uh, at the newspaper in Newark for 15 years. Uh, usually uh, when you're trying to build a career in journalism, you change jobs frequently, always moving up the ladder of the size, larger paper, more right, responsibility. Right, bigger market. So right, right. Yeah. But, uh, but I didn't go that direction because uh, for two reasons. Number one, I really wanted to stay close to the Columbus uh, Tibetan Buddhist Center, the Karma Tixam Choling Center, where my teacher, Kempo Carter Rinpoche, would come and teach. And I also stayed in the area because my husband had a good job and my parents were still living and wanted to stay close to home. So I had three really good reasons to stay in central Ohio. And doing the work at the newspaper was uh, joyful, fun, uh, stressful at times, but I had the now the practice of Buddhist meditation to help me uh, cope with the stress of being a reporter. So it was really great. It all seemed to work together. So these are just maybe personal questions from me because I'm curious. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm a fan of uh, Pema Chodron. And oh, I, sure. I know that her teacher's um, was, I, I think his last name was the same. It, was he um, in the same lineage? Uh, your oh, teacher, you or know, no? well, yeah, and yes, uh, uh, the answer is yes and no. Um, ah, okay. <laughs> I, I think you're thinking, I, I believe you're thinking of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Right. Rinpoche is word, just the word that yeah, I. Yeah, Rinpoche is, uh, is a title of honor oh, and respect in Tibetan Buddhism. Gotcha. It literally, it literally means precious teacher. Okay. Uh, uh, Rin uh, Rin Chen means jewel, and so the idea is that the the teacher is precious, and this title is given in honor of specific teachers who, either in a previous lifetime, uh, they are uh, they were a great a being in a previous lifetime, and they were reborn to that heritage as uh, as a future incarnation. Uh, or they have been given the title because of their extraordinary meditative accomplishment and learning. Chogyam uh, okay. Trungpa was a reincarnate teacher, and then my teacher, Kempo Karta Rinpoche, was given that title by the 16th Karmapa in honor of, uh, of, uh, of Kempo Karta Rinpoche's uh, meditation and uh, uh, scholarship. Okay. So mm-hmm. not quite the same lineage, because you said yeah, yes oh, it and was, no. <laughs> it was a very, yeah, very, very similar. Uh, they were both from the uh, Karmakaju tradition. Okay. And then when, uh, but uh, uh, Chogyam Trungpa also uh, had some, uh, I believe he held some uh, teachings from the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism as well. There are four traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. Okay. And, uh, and the Kagyu and the Nyingma traditions uh, uh, have are, are the older of the four, and they have had over the years a lot of uh, 
a lot of interchange among among themselves. They uh, their great masters have given each other teachings and empowerments and so forth. And okay. so there's a lot of uh, relationship between the Nyingma and the Kaiju tradition over the centuries. Understood. Understood. Okay. Yeah. I, I just uh, I listened to one of uh, Pema Chodron's audiobooks. Oh sure. Uh, which one was it? Uh, something like. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is learning to stay, but that's not what it is. <laughs> well, it might be the name of the lecture. It's getting unstuck. Okay. Get, getting unstuck go. is the name, I think is the name of the book. But she mm-hmm. says learning to stay a lot. And, uh, and oh, yeah. I think she's hilarious and she tells great stories. Oh, I think, you know, I think she has a, a very great mind. She's, um, she has what we would call a fine mind. She's very articulate and she's very straightforward. And she has a lot of experience of, of being uh, a contemplative, conscientious, compassionate human being mm-hmm. who's always curious and always learning. And because of this, and because of her extraordinary ability to show this compassion to others through her writing and her teaching, uh, she's a treasure. She's a real treasure. She is. Oh, I could listen to her forever. <laughs> yeah. She, good. That's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, like, I listened to um, that audio book on a very long drive, and um, <laughs> and I had two other people in the car with me, and they were like... We've had enough. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you, no, no. You know, they wanted to listen to some Beatles music, and I was totally cool with that, it. too. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you can only take so much, right? Right. No, I understand. Yeah. So, okay. So, we're, we're almost there. So, you, um, after those 15 years, you ended up going to um, this retreat, and it was a mm-hmm. three-year retreat. Now, right. I, I listened to your show on Eric... Um, Eric Zimmer's podcast, um, oh, sure. the one you feed, and mm-hmm. um, and you guys talked about this, and I was a little curious about because it seemed like at the beginning you were like, oh, I'm going to go do this retreat, and and then it'll be fun, and then I'll go back to my job, and I'll continue to be a reporter, and somewhere along the line you realized that that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, was that like a sure. shock surprise or was that just like an, oh, yeah. What yeah. was that? What was that? Because right. I, I don't know. Well, I, mean, I I remember the day, actually. Um, great. I remember, I remember the day and uh, I don't remember how uh, deep into the retreat I was. It might have been six months. It might have been eight months into the retreat. When I looked up from my uh, prayer book one day, or it either happened while I was uh, reading my prayer book, or it may have happened while I was uh, doing a, a, a walk outdoors in nature again, and I remembered thinking to myself, wow, this is what it feels to be without the constant uh, painful stress of being uh, a reporter on deadline continuously because right. you 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 go into these fields not realizing the subtle toll that that type of pressure uh, takes upon you you have no idea you don't even think about it 
Right. And, and at, uh, at a certain point, it, it's sort of like below your conscious radar almost. It just becomes mm-hmm. this normal, very roomy. That's what I would I would call it. Say you were rooming. You were a little bit on autopilot, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Sure. Yeah. And uh, and yeah. And and I had no idea what was happening until I was away from it. And then right. once I was away from it, then I got the sense of, wow, this is what it's like to be without stress. I don't think I can ever do it again. I don't think I could ever put myself back into that situation again, not in good conscience because it wouldn't work. Okay. And so, and so it was at that point that I said, well, maybe I'll work part time, but then, you know, because I'm, I'm part of a couple and I have, you know, I have some responsibility to my family. I thought, well, maybe when I get out of retreat, maybe I will try to go back and see what happens. Because you have these responsibilities, uh, but also some concern. But what a uh, blessing so, that you were able to take three years off of a job and they were sort of open for you to come back. That was... Oh, and actually, uh, it wasn't like that. Oh, okay. Uh, I, uh, I uh, well, yes and no. I, that's, a good, that's a good thing. I have, to, I have to recall this. If I remember correctly... When I left, there was a sense of finality about it. But now that now that you've mentioned this, I think the managing editor did indicate to me that if there was an opening when I came back, that I could apply for the job and would be a, an extremely strong candidate. Right, right. Well, that's and, pretty uh, nice. And, that's yeah, not, then, a, that's and, not a promise, but it's, a, it's right. an open door. Right. And then when I did come back, I did go back to see the uh, managing editor at that time because small town newspapers, especially those owned by a, a chain operation, they do change editors a little more often. Uh, and, uh, and so I saw the editor at that time and they did say that I could come back, but I, I really just couldn't in all conscience do it. I just couldn't imagine doing it. Uh, especially after I had uh, what I would call my exit interview uh, with my teacher, Kempo Carthur Rinpoche, and uh, I asked him what he wanted me to do now that the retreat was uh, completed, and he gave me a list of meditation practices to do, one in the morning, one in the early morning, one in the later morning, one in the early afternoon, one in the later afternoon, and one in the evening, and I said, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to hold down a regular job and do all the practice that you're requesting. And then he said in English, because um, he had learned some English by this point, he said, uh, little working okay, but now you do Dharma. That was my job interview. (laughs) Oh, that's the best. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, well, for people that don't know, Dharma is purpose, right? Uh, is Is that the best way to say it? Uh, Dharma is, well, Dharma has so many meanings. Right, it, it, right. Can, it can mean teaching, it can mean truth, it can mean it's whatever. It's why you were put on the planet, basically. Uh, well, uh, the, the, Buddhists, of, uh, the okay. Buddhists don't look at it that way, okay. uh, of course, because in Buddhism there is no uh, supposed to. There, uh, you know, there's, as it's I may have opportunities. mentioned, there's, uh, there's uh, because, it, because in Buddhism there's no sense that uh, that a person has been placed on earth by a deity gotcha. in order to accomplish a specific task. That's great. Okay. And uh, they, uh, we don't have that belief system. 
And, uh, and we also don't believe, as some do, that people arrange before their birth what the lessons of their life are going to be. They don't sit in a big room, a classroom, or whatever right, to say, hey, and say, yeah, this will yeah, be what, your what life am I going to learn this life? What right. am I supposed to learn this lifetime? Okay. So we, we don't go that direction. We, we are born with a set of circumstances uh, based upon our previous karma, but then we have the, the free will to make the choices about what we're going to do with this uh, amazing opportunity that we have by being alive. And, uh, and what are we going to do with that amazing opportunity? I joke around with people. I say, if you have been born a, a human being in a favorable circumstance, it's as though you have won the karmic lottery. It's true. And what are you going to do with your winnings? Right. What are you going to do to make your life uh, purposeful and worthwhile? Because otherwise you're just spending the money and, and not uh, and not doing anything good with it means that it's gone. And then in your next life, you will not have the same opportunities you may not have, not will, but may not have the same opportunities you have today. Right. right so anyways, right. I'm, so talk about veer. I just veered off course here, but uh, you can see where we're going. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that was, that was great. So yeah, okay. you, you can never veer off course. That's okay. That's perfect. Because yeah. you know, you, you need to, you needed to set me straight. So, uh, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully in a nice way. Hopefully. Well, no, nice I, 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 that, that it, I'm very much like, um, Ram Das in that I was kind of like, uh, just shopping around in my spiritual, um, journey. Um, so, you know, I know a little bit about a lot, but not a lot okay. about any anyone. So I've heard Dharma, but lots of different traditions use that word. Sure. And mm-hmm. they apply different meanings to it. So right. I don't want to apply a meaning to it. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I uh, know what you're saying. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So cool. it, that's what you set me straight. And I'm glad that happened. <laughs> So your Dharma then became becoming the retreat Lama and this became your full-time job now. Yes, it is. It's what I do. Uh, It's what I do now. When I first got back, I did some writing for a few years and that was great and enjoyable. I did not work full-time. I just did uh, occasional stories, features, and uh, did a lot of uh, theater reviews because it was something that I had a background in from before. Ah, I did theater and, in high school. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I had a I had a I had a background in uh review and criticism in college. Okay. And I was a an arts editor when I at the college paper when I was in college and so I had done quite a bit of reviewing and so they they needed that done, so I did that for them. And so I did that for a number of years. But eventually, uh, uh, the different karma takes some cholling centers in His Holiness Karmapa's um, national network of centers. There are about 25, or give or take. Uh, they, a few of them invited me to come travel there. And so I, I have gone. This is, uh, I am in the middle of my 19th year of doing that. Uh, and it's uh, really amazing to see how the time has just uh, flown away. It's really something. So what is a day-to-day sort of schedule look like for Lama Kathy? Do you mm. like do you like have to write sort of like teachings or is it less like that? 
It's less like that. I'm, okay. I am more like I am more like uh, my friend, the Christian minister, okay. in that uh, in that I get up in the morning uh, and I have uh, a set of uh, of prayers that I do in the morning and meditation that I do in the morning. It takes about an hour, sometimes a little longer if I can. Right. And uh, and then uh, set up my uh, Buddhist shrine and the offerings on my Buddhist shrine. And then uh, I do that first and then do my prayers and meditation. And then after that, it's uh, time to set my motivation for the day because that's something I do uh, before I get up from meditation. I think may everything I do today be of benefit to beings in some way, regardless of whether, you know, it's, it's uh, polished or not polished. May everything I do be of benefit to somebody. And then I get up and start doing my everyday things. Uh, I uh, work on several different projects. I am the communications person for the main uh, Karmatriana Dharma Chakra uh, Monastery and Retreat Center in Woodstock. Uh, so I am reviewing brochures and writing for them and uh, also working on their scheduling. And so I do kind of a little bit of a work for them. And then I also take care of uh, Dharma students who write me letters and uh, and then also I do phone call interviews with people. So and I have done hospital visitations. I've blessed babies and done funerals and uh, you name it. Uh, it's very much like the day of any minister. Uh, very much the same. And uh, I have uh, evening prayers that I do as well. Uh, so I, I am not doing the large schedule that Rinpoche laid out for me when I first got out of retreat, but my my longing is that uh, someday when I'm able to uh, to do so, I'll be able to go back to that really wonderful schedule that I kept for the first six years that I was um, I was out of retreat, because uh, in the middle of that, um, I I did have to spend some time taking care of my elderly parents who were ill, and uh, they have both since passed away. But uh, I spent about 10 years uh, more, more or less managing their affairs on a day-to-day basis. I was not their hands-on caregiver, but I took care of things for them. Right. And so it was, it's a, it was a busy time. And right. so I was doing all of those things at once. <laughs> wow. Actually, it's, um, uh, I wanted to bring this up, but now you've given me a door. So um, mm-hmm. a friend of mine is a monk in Japan. Mm-hmm. So, and that is a, is a different animal, but his, his day-to-day job is very similar to what you just described mm-hmm. is, is in, in Buddhism in Japan is quite a bit different from your tradition. Um, and I don't know that much about it, but just from being the, the, the gaijin that doesn't speak any Japanese or very little Japanese looking at it from the outside. And, um, you know, my, um, my, my wife is Japanese and mm-hmm. her best friend married a guy who ended up becoming a Buddhist monk in Japan. So, mm-hmm. but he uh, there is very much just like, you know, parish parish priest or, you know, a, a pastor. You know, mm-hmm. you have to mm-hmm. deal with the births and the deaths and the and the marriages sure. and and all of the spiritual needs of that community, and, you know, in the boonies of Japan. You know, it's very right. m- mundane mm-hmm. but amazing. That's mm-hmm. one of my, I, I love that little phrase, mundazing. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, it is. Right, right. right. It's so, yeah, so that, that now the, the thing that I, that I wanted to bring up about, he, he was having um, a lot of stress because he, um, he didn't really like his job choice after he made it. Um, mm-hmm. So 
you know, I'm hoping that he 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 finds some peace in that. Mm, um, mm-hmm, you sure. Know, because in Japan, it's a little bit more duty bound. It's like sure. And you can walk away, but then he, you know, he, he thinks he, he would be bad, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So he was, you know, pretty stressed out. And that's mm-hmm. not a good place for a monk to be. I felt yeah. bad for him. But anyway, mm-hmm. let's not be too downer on that. Um, so now um, let's get into a little bit of, uh, of how Buddhism can help people I like to talk to my listeners by by t- saying you. So that uh, mm. that other person there that's listening uh, mm-hmm. in the car, mm-hmm. sure. And maybe they've uh, they're interested in meditation like you were, um, mm-hmm. but their only exposure is uh, say been um, yoga class or something. Um, sure. Are there are there places where they can connect to um, either your lineage or you know another Buddhist? closely related Tibetan Buddhist sort of center um, throughout mm-hmm. the country? I, I think you said something like around 25 centers. Yes. Uh-huh. That's not very many for a large country like the United States, right. but at least at least it's a start. And, sure. uh, and so, yes, there are karma takes some trolling centers in many places in the United States. In large cities, there's one in Chicago, one in Los Angeles. Ah, uh, actually, it's, Los it's Angeles. called. <laughs> it's actually called the. It's the Santa Monica Santa Monica karma takes some trolling. It's not That's Los Angeles right. itself. I missed you teaching. Darn it. Yes. I just yeah, saw that I email was, again, and I was like, oh, yeah, I had something else going yeah. on. I could have yeah. saw. We could have done this live. <laughs> that would have been I better. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been fun. Yeah, as soon as you said and, that, I went and looked at my calendar. We were out of town. I was like, Nyeh. yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. And then I was also, and then uh, San Diego. There's also one in San Diego. And right. uh, well, Santa Monica is so, good for me. I can go check that yeah. out. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then there are other towns in the U.S. Dallas, Texas. Uh, uh, there are three in Florida: St. Augustine, and uh, also in Tampa, and in Jacksonville and Gainesville. So that's four. And wow, then there are a couple in there are a couple in uh, in the Carolinas, uh, Asheville, uh, North Carolina, and in um, Greenville, and in the uh, Raleigh Durham area. And so, but then inland, it's uh, in the Midwest. It's uh, there's one in Wisconsin, and uh, they they call it Hay River, Wisconsin. But uh, it's pe- it's uh, people in the Minneapolis area can get there. Okay. And uh, and then there's also Ann Arbor, Michigan, Columbus, Ohio, uh, Athens, Ohio, Erie, Pennsylvania, Indiana County, Pennsylvania. So there's there's quite a few. And then also uh, down south, uh, there's one on Amelia Island, which I think is off the coast of Georgia, but I, I'm not 100% sure. So, if so there's, there's quite a few. Can, can, but you can, can find them. You okay. can find them by going to uh, uh, org, and you can find all of the centers that are associated with His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa Urgent Trinley Dorje. You can find the, those centers there. Great. I'll put the a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's, yeah. let's talk a little bit about like some of the benefits of, uh, you know, your chosen life path and more for the lay person, not necessarily for, you know, I'm sure, you know, very few people are going to, you know, change their life and become a, a llama or a monk, but just, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. But if they want to uh, introduce, um, meditation and and buddhist practice um Mm -hmm. from your tradition 
mm-hmm. besides seeking out um, a center, um, mm-hmm. can they start doing that at home with some downloads oh, sure. or, okay. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, Kempo Kartaribache wrote a book a number of years ago called uh, Dharma Paths. And in that book, he has a chapter on meditation called Taming the Mind, and he gives point-for-point meditation instructions. And I think that's really, really useful. And uh, we're working on getting some, uh, some YouTube videos up uh, that give point-for-point meditation instruction. They, those are not ready yet. Okay. But that's something, but that's something that we're working toward. And, um, and I think the easiest thing to begin with, there are two, well, if you think about the name, Karma Triana Dharma Chakra, which is Sanskrit, and Karma takes some choling, which is Tibetan, our name tells us what we are. Karma refers to the Karmapa, the head of our lineage, the Karmakaju lineage. Teksum or Triana means the three paths of the Buddha. And Chuling means the Dharma wheel or the Dharma place. And Dharma Chakra is the same. So it's like the the place of the Buddhist teachings of the of Karmapa, you know. Okay. And, and so his three uh, paths of teaching. So what I tell people is if you're interested in Buddhist meditation from our tradition, there are three types of meditation that we do. We do quiet sitting called shamatha. Okay, shamatha. Uh, and okay. shamatha is just breath awareness meditations. It's very... Um, Sounds it's very, similar uh, to like this Vipassana? Uh, there are there are several different traditions of Buddhist okay. meditation, and uh, many of them uh, there uh, in the Theravadan tradition they call uh, their meditation vipassana, okay. and uh, and in the Tibetan tradition we teach them uh, slightly separately from one another, okay. shamatha first and then vipassana later, but everybody has different techniques, but they're all heading in the same in the they're, same they're direction. They're at the same thing, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. Whether yes. they're from the Theravadan tradition, the Mahayana tradition, the Tibetan tradition, they're all pointing at the same thing, which is to allow the mind to settle into itself in a way that's comfortable, it's kind of away from the franticness. I tell people that quiet sitting meditation is not taking an eraser and wiping your mind clean. Right. It's actually learning how to attend to just one thing. Your breath, and then when your attention wanders, you bring it back. So rather than telling people that when they sit down and meditate, oh, well, you now have to clear your mind. Instead, uh, when I teach it, I, I explain what you'll have when you first place your attention on the breath is you'll have a few moments of attention, and then you'll wander off. And then when you wander off, you notice the wandering, you touch it with your attention, you drop it, and then you return your attention to the breath. And when you return it to the breath, you've got a fresh start. Right. That, that's meditation. Yes. Is noticing, discarding, and returning without a sense of judgment or, or punishment or ineffectiveness or whatever. Because if you notice, drop, and return, you've done the work. There, yeah, and I, I know a lot of people that are trying to start a meditation practice will get stuck on that on that, oh, I, I can't do it or I'm not doing it right um, because because their mind is wandering. And that's what you know. That's right. You just need, yeah, exactly. You just need to keep doing it. So uh, somebody said, I can't remember. Uh, I'm listening to too many podcasts now. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's okay because I'm getting a lot of good stuff. Um, but that little round where, you know, okay, I'm going to focus on the breath and then I've wandered off and now I've noticed and returned. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that he counts that as a push up, 
right? And, mm-hmm. and right. So, and you're not going to get better at meditation if you're not doing your push-ups. I, I thought that right. was an interesting idea. Oh yeah. And that helps, I, you know, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then you think you're doing it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, see, the idea is, uh, is to uh, show people what meditation is and what it isn't so that they have realistic expectations of what they can right. actually accomplish and they can actually see progress because if you sit down and meditate and think you're not supposed to think then you've got a, a you've got <laughs> yeah. a, a, a you've real set your you've got kind of a setup for disaster yeah exactly and whereas if you think that your purpose in sitting is to start with your period of attention and then remember to bring it back bring your attention back when your mind wanders or when your attention wanders that is Right. When your attention wanders to bring your attention back, that's that you can feel stronger every time you do it. Mm-hmm. And 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 see, and this is to me the I guess you could, I call it the power moment of meditation is when you notice the distraction, you touch it lightly, you uh, let go of it, and then you return your attention to the breath. That's really now you've done meditation. And I try never to use the word concentrate or focus when I teach meditation because mm. uh, it, it sets up a, a little bit too much effort. I agree. Uh, when people yep. put a little too much effort into their, when they put a little too much effort into what's going on, they'll actually think more in reaction to that. Yeah. The, they they will generate the, more right, thoughts. I get you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they've turned on their prefrontal cortex a little bit too much. Wish I knew more about that, but they, but the, the brain actually, light bulb. Yeah, but they, you know, they're, because they're pressing too hard. Exactly. And, yes, and yes. So it's more of a soft can, kind of, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. gentle sort of. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in and in Tibetan in the Tibetan tradition of of uh, the Karmakaju tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, we have these three paths. The first is this quiet sitting. The second is a compassion meditation, which you'll know from Pema Chodron's teaching is as the teaching of Tong Len or sending and receiving. It's where we place an intention on our breath as it goes out, wishing for the happiness of beings, and place an intention when we breathe in, thinking that we remove the suffering from beings using our imagination to train ourselves to be less selfish and more benevolent. I love that, and, yeah. You yeah, brought that, that up in, in Eric's show, too. It's a marvelous meditation. Yeah, and then, lo- I've, I've tried that one uh, on my lay meditations, and it is. Mm-hmm. It's like where you're, you're breathing in suffering and you're, what is it? You exhale love and compassion. Correct. Yes. Right. That, that, and that feels wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Mm-hmm. It does. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and then the third style of meditation is, are the various types of, uh, of uh, Vajrayana meditations, including uh, in the Karmakaju tradition, we do a very, uh, uh, like a deep style of meditation that is called Mahamudra, and uh, it has elements of shamatha and vipassana in it. It has okay. those. And then, uh, and then we also teach mantra meditation. Even beginners can learn uh, mantra if they learn um, the some of the simpler ones, like the compassion mantra, Omani Peme Hong. That's a, a real a well-known me- mantra all throughout to the Tibetan Buddhist world. And a lot of uh, folks who are interested in Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, and it was even in Be Here Now. It was uh, uh, Ram Das uh, put the mantra Omani Peme Hong in his collection of mantras in the book. Wow. And what does that what does that translate to? 
Well, uh, the, according to Bokar Rinpoche in his book, uh, uh, Chenrezig, Lord of Love, he says that Om re- it has many, many deep meanings, but it also refers to the enlightened uh, body of the Buddha, and Hong, or Hum, is the enlightened mind of the Buddha. And Mani, M-A-N-I, Mani means uh, jewel, Peme means lotus, and so it refers to the Bodhisattva of compassion, Chenrezig, or Avalokiteshvara, as he's known in Sanskrit. And um, Chenrezig is holding, in iconography, he's depicted as holding a jewel, which is symbolic of our Buddha nature, which, if we bring it to realization, gives us all that we need. And the lotus, which is symbolic of the bodhisattva who lives in this world but isn't stained by it in the same way that a lotus flower is rooted in the mud and, and blooms above it. So, mm, um, that's so it means the one, it's a way of saying Chenrezig's name. Wow. That's, yeah. That's pretty cool. Now I'm going to have it to is. go look. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to yeah. have to go look all that stuff up. That was good stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you were. It sounds like uh, you weren't really surprised when when you when you found out um, you were going to become this llama, and you kind of signed up to it willingly. But it oh, was. It I, did seem like it was a, a bit of a surprise, right? It was a bit of a surprise in that uh, I just knew I was doing the three year retreat, right? And uh, I knew that when I was done, I was going to be able to help out and teach people meditation. And it wasn't until uh, uh, the Kempo Carter Rinpoche gave us a talk at the end, where he uh, at the end of the retreat, where he said, "Well, traditionally in Tibet, which I thought were the were the operative phrases in that sentence, uh, traditionally in Tibet, when people <laughs> finish the three year retreat, they were given the title of Lama." And then he said, "Now, what does this mean?" This means that from now until you die, you have only one function, and that is to connect everyone you meet with the Dharma. And so, um, and so that's it, it. Was kind of a shocker at that moment. Like, wow, you mean I'm going to do that? And then he gave us our um, <laughs> our robes to wear. He gave okay. us our robes to wear, and uh, and the ones who are monastic have to wear them all day, every day. And the ones who are lay people, like myself, who are not monastic. Um, oh, okay. Uh, we uh, we wear them only when we're teaching. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. So mm-hmm. you are you're not you're not considered a monk then. No, I'm not. No. Okay. Uh, the, the, there are differences in the various Buddhist traditions. Right. Of uh, some, uh, yes, there are monastics, and then there are also lay lamas. There are okay. monastic lamas who both have the uh, the renunciate vows and uh, who also. Uh, who also are lamas by training. The la- the title of lama is given after uh, a train a significant training of some sort, either through retreat or another means. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's always given by somebody above you, not by someone below you. Sure. Sure. Interesting. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about um, some of the um, the benefits of meditation. Say to sure. those folks that. Um, just have never meditated before. So what are the sort of things that people can expect if they were to take up a meditation practice? I think that even a small meditation practice done daily, it's like a small yoga practice or a small exercise practice done daily. At first, you won't see any difference at all. 
But mm-hmm. over days, weeks, months, and years, if you persist in it, uh, what's going to happen is that you'll begin to notice your thought patterns more. Uh, right now, a, a lot of us just live from story to story, uh, as Pema Chodron likes to talk about it. We, we live the stories of our lives rather than living our lives. We tell ourselves stories about what's going on and why things are happening. And we are very reactive when we think that the story is not going our way. And you only have to drive in California traffic to know how this works. <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the fellow uh, who, just, uh, who just waved you in so that you could actually get into his lane of traffic then becomes the, uh, the idiot who uh, tailgates you. Right. And so foes and friends change very frequently, and sometimes we like to believe that the, our friends will be friends forever and our foes will, you know, bad things will happen to them. And But the fact of the matter is that uh, when we meditate, we begin to notice how we embroider our experience mm. based, on, based on what we're thinking at any given time. And we begin to want to make a change in how we think. And we begin to notice uh, how, how prejudiced we are. And, uh, and so forth. I had a friend that told me, I used to think I was a pretty compassionate guy. And then I started practicing meditation and I found out, uh, how judgmental my thought, my thought processes were, how judgmental I was. Mm-hmm. He says, I was unaware of that until I became, uh, until I became a meditator and began to become aware of my thoughts when I wasn't meditating. Right. right. And then he said, I had to take responsibility for mm-hmm. my thoughts you know, garbage in, garbage out, as they used to say in computers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was going to bounce this off you too, because I've been meditating and or on my own spiritual path for years. And I want to say just recently, um, say in the last year or so, um, I've, uh, I've actually want to behave better. I think that might be one of those things that came up Mm -hmm. because my Mm -hmm. strategy really, I guess, whenever I got triggered was just to do it. If if Mm -hmm. that makes any sense whatsoever. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That's one way of making Mm -hmm. it go away. That's one way. That's one way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the the thing is, is the, uh, this behavior, whatever that is, say it's an addiction or TV or wine or whatever, food, whatever is the sticky thing of the moment is Mm -hmm. just that, you know, it's, it's an avoidance is that's, you know, of, Mm -hmm. of being present. Right. Um, so I guess, uh, through journaling, meditation, you know, diet improvement, exercise, yoga, all these different practices, um, it becomes like super. Cl- I actually write in my journal. I can feel myself being triggered right now. <laughs> you know, sure. I can feel it. You know, and I don't want to do the thing anymore. Right. That's new. Mm-hmm. That's that's new. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that this is the this is the number one side effect that I hear people tell me about when they have been meditating for a while and it's become part of their daily or regular routine is that they begin to notice their behavior and they actually begin to notice their prejudices and the things they do that they don't feel proud of and they also begin to notice how um how other people are they actually begin to notice how other people are triggered and how other people are um spinning their own stories about what's going on. And so there's this sense of empathy that gets born. 
And I think that to me is the is the the beginning of the next stage of spiritual development for a person. Because when they think that they can just do whatever they want and and that it won't hurt anybody. And that if you think to do something, then that must mean you're supposed to do something. And if you think <laughs> it, you gotta do it. Uh, and it's kind of like the person who's got, you know, a hundred channels on cable and they think they got to watch them all because exactly. they're on. Yeah. They're on. You know? And so I think that people um, who've meditated for a while will get this awareness of how it feels to be triggered. And they'll realize that it's, it's a form <clears throat> of negativity that they're actually putting consciously and purposefully into their systems. And it's not, it doesn't feel good and it probably doesn't bring any happiness. And as my, my friends in the 12-step tradition of uh, recovery, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and so forth, as my friends in 12-step like to say, uh, holding a grudge is like a drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. <laughs> you know, yeah. so what's happening is that we begin to see the impact of our own chosen patterns on ourselves and we begin to want to make a change. Uh, definitely. And, definitely. And, and, and in meditation on that seat, on your meditation seat, when you let go of a thought, what, the, what that one meditation teacher called doing a push-up, when you <laughs> let go of that thought, you actually see that the thought is made of nothing and it, because it disappears. Right. And that means that all of your habits, which are made of those thoughts, are actually now possibly up for grabs they can be changed yes because it, even the big mm. ugly hairy thoughts you can let go of and as you do that then you become more free and more able to make measured uh conscientious and hopefully more caring choices about what to do with your energy yeah and and uh and let's talk a little bit about when you find yourself triggered um mm -hmm. so I have, uh, I kind of like have like a, like a, like a weekly pattern, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so the mornings are usually relatively trigger free, mm -hmm. but usually somewhere around, I don't know, afternoonish, eveningish, um, maybe I might, that's, that's when the uh, Mara might come walking around, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, my first thought was, well, if I have to do something, I want to do something that's innocuous, you know, that uh, will, you know, make the feeling go away, um, but won't cause me any sort of downside, you know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, tea instead of wine, right, would be a, an easy example, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But then again, now I'm starting to think that that's not a good answer either. Mm -hmm. And maybe, mm, I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more mm -hmm. of like, no, that's. It's more of like, can can I just you know feel it? Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. Sure. Just well, that's right. It, that's know? right. Yeah, right. Exactly. And and this is where I think uh, the the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism in general and the Tibetan tradition has this uh, has has a method or a technique. And it's called uh, Lojong, and that's uh, L-O-J-O-N-G, Lojong, and it means mind training. And it basically tells you, gives you alternatives of things to do when you're triggered. That's beautiful. And that's, 
And that's pretty much the function of Lojong. And this the, Lojong has been at the heart of Pema Chodron's teachings uh, since day one. Okay. And uh, and but the but the methods and techniques are things you have to study uh, either from her books or in person or from teachers. But the uh, but the methodology here is to place while you're learning. Remember, I said you're you're learning how to let go of thoughts in the practice of meditation, right? You're learning yes. how to let go. Okay, but at the same time, you should be taking on something else. Remember what I said uh, that I do every morning? I say, well, wherever I'm going today, may I benefit beings there. No matter even if I make mistakes, even if I'm an idiot, even if whatever, may I benefit beings. That's what you're taking on while you are busy letting go of negative patterns. You're taking on a positive pattern. Mm, And the positive pattern is training the mind in altruism. Now, if you remember in in brain science over there in the science department, yes. in brain science, br- uh, brain scientists first spent a lot of time studying uh, mindfulness and the whole idea of meditation and what it does for the brain. Now, some of those same scientists are turning their minds or turning their attention, that is, toward altruism and finding out what's going on in altruism. Why is it a successful motivator? And what's so funny is, of course, all the faith traditions of the world say do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But, of course, you need to have a how. How do you do that? And in Lojong, Lojong, the how is to quietly and continuously inculcate or or, or, um, or, uh, train yourself in the attitude, may I be of benefit to others. Mm-hmm. May I be of benefit mm-hmm. to others? When you go into a situation, may I benefit others? You think like that, so that it's uh, it's part of your um, uh, part of your DNA. It's part of uh, right. how you it's approach like any situation. If you want to get new agey, it's like your vibe, <clears throat> right? It's right. Through, you're, you you want to be the guy throwing out good vibes, right? The you want to be that the girl. person, right? Right. Yeah, okay. you want to be the, be, be the person who has that wish to benefit beings, which reads as sincerity even if you're uh, even if you make mistakes they will know that you sincerely wish to help yeah and uh and i think that's the thing so that's what lojong training is all about we have a whole set of lojong trainings that we do and one of them is for when you get triggered when you get triggered there's a um there's a slogan uh uh, Payment Children talks about the mind training or Lojong slogans. There are 59 of them. They were written way back in the uh, 12th century by wow. Chikawa Yeshidorje, and they're still good today. And one of them, these slogans, is three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue. Now, you may say, what does that mean? And the three objects are things we like, things we dislike, and things we're indifferent toward. Right. And the three poisons are what the Buddha called the poisonous negative mental mind states like uh, uh, attachment, aversion, and bewilderment or uh-huh. apathy. Mm. And so what happens is, is we go through our day and that nasty person says this and this good person says this and we don't like the nasty guy and we like the nice one and we're indifferent toward virtually everybody else. Right. So, so how would it be if every time somebody came at you with something nasty and you be, and you got triggered your own anger started to arise how would it be if you could turn that nastiness into uh, an aspiration for goodness mm. 
And so what you do is that you would uh, you take, take your, that. You're noticing of the triggering. Is that uh-huh. okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's as though, okay, because when you when you get triggered by something, it's as though you're in this like orbit with them. Mm-hmm. It's you and them and you and them and around and around and around. And then you start to, you know, spin out revenge fantasies. You know, how I'm going to get back for what they did right. around and around and around and around. What you have to do is your mindfulness, which you've developed through meditation, is going to help you notice, hey, I'm going around with this and it hurts. Right. And so, you, just the, the, so you, the fact you that stop. you notice that you're triggered, you know. It's, it's fantastic. Right. So then you make a conscious a conscious uh, decision to stop. It's almost like you put a stick in that flywheel and you hold it. Mm. And then you say, uh, "This uh, I am feeling anger. So you identify it. That's step one. Name it, right? You name it. You identify it. I mm-hmm. am feeling angry. So first of all, you disengage from that other person. Right. And even in your mind, you, mm-hmm. you say, look, this, this anger, that other person's not my problem. My angry reaction, that's my problem. Right. So then you say, I am angry. That's step one. Step two, you recognize that anger is, uh, is poisonous to you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Yes, justice, you can work for justice later, but you don't need anger to work for justice. Right. So, so right now you're working with your own reactiveness because if you're reacting in anger, justice may end up getting kicked farther away from you. <laughs> right. I'm just saying. No, for, so, for real. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, okay, so step two is to identify it uh, as, the, as being poisonous. The, the next step is then to engage your altruism by making an aspiration. You think other people are feeling angry on the planet right now. May my anger contain the anger of myself and all of the beings on this planet. Wow. In this universe. In mm. this universe. May my anger contain the anger of all beings. And by my working through this, which since you've disconnected from the thing you're angry about, it has already started to lose power, mm-hmm. right? That, that reactiveness is losing its power because you're doing something else. Right. So by, by my working through this moment of anger, may I and all beings be free of it. And may we come to spiritual awakening. In Buddhism, we say Buddhahood. But may we come to spiritual awakening which is the complete freedom from anger. And by sort of plugging this, uh, plugging your negative mental affliction into this formula, you have turned your angry reaction into an aspiration to be free of anger, which is really interesting. That's what they say, three objects, three poisons become the three seeds of virtue. Mm. So, and anger is just a placeholder here for insert mm-hmm. whatever trigger. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. Jealousy, competitiveness, frustration, impatience. St- any uh, of the stickiness, guys. I- I'm big on yeah. the stickiness ones. You know, like, oh, I just, I just one more glass of wine won't kill me. You know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you really need it? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. You know, or is it, is it a, you know, is it a, a solution to a problem that you could uh, kind of work with more directly? Right, right. Instead of pushing it down the road because, exactly. because the glass just, of wine. is just sort of like delaying this. Yeah, right. It just delays the, and, and plus it may, in some cases, not all, but in some cases it may add a second problem. Yeah, I had um, <laughs> Well, yeah, there you have it. And then you're mad at yourself, and then yeah, oh, then, you, then, geez, then, then the just, wheel is you know, going again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's constantly so, kicking that wheel around. Yeah. See, so so uh, this um, this methodology of lojong, 
it, it, training the mind to have an altruistic feeling toward others uh, as a as a basis, and then when you in, when you feel negative mental afflictions, to grab hold of them. Don't run from them and don't push them because that's usually what happens. We either stuff them down and pretend we don't have them, mm-hmm. or we blindly express them. Right. And then kick, kick, oh, you know, kick the wall or kick a dog or just terrible stuff we do. <laughs> kick ourselves, you know? Yeah, the and self-abuse the, and self, uh, yeah. oh, yeah, that's, that's running rampant now. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and so rather than go to these two extremes of stuffing down the emotion and pretending you don't have it, mm-hmm. or the other extreme, of, which I call blind suppression, or you go to the other extreme of blind expression where you, you, you kick somebody or you something and then you think, yeah. oh, that handled it. Yeah, like, right. ah, that'll no. show them <laughs> yeah it's not it's not gonna work so right. what this technique does is it goes straight down the middle mm-hmm. it goes straight down the middle away from the extremes and you engage your your feeling you feel it you don't kick it away you feel it and then you say may i experience the anger of all beings may i take that for them because i i'm dealing with it here i'm dealing with it here right. may i and all beings be free of it let and me, what's let, let me is, be big enough to hold mm-hmm. the anger of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which that's, you can because it's your imagination. That's a pretty big wish, but I love it. It's your yeah, imagination. It's imagination, right. You can do it. That's yeah. amazing. I, mean, I love that I teaching. Mean, we, we watch the Olympics and we hear about all these uh, athletes who, uh, who imagine themselves winning races and uh, uh, doing high jumps and, uh, and all of this because they do it through their imagination. Well, why can't we imagine being better and more kind and more altruistic. So that's kind of where I go with that. So have you ever heard the story of, uh, of having tea with Mara? I just heard that. I haven't, no, I haven't heard that one. You haven't heard that one. Okay. So in some tradition, Mara is the, the God that represents all that is bad. Um, and then supposedly the great master, I thought it was Buddha, but maybe not. Um, was saying, okay, I see you, Mara, right? And then, and then, so that was recognizing that she was triggered, uh, or he was triggered, and then, and then say, come here, let's have some tea. So basically, whenever Mara shows up, you know, be it greed, anger, jealousy, whatever, um, first you notice and name her, right? That's what, that's what you were saying. And then you sit with her and, and work with her. And that's, it's similar to what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that the basically yeah, it was all summed sure. up in, in having tea with Mara, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is just right. another story to, to get the oh, same sure. point across. I, I just thought, well, you know, maybe she's heard this story and we could share a little story that, you know, we both know. Apparently not. That's okay. <laughs> hey, you, know, you can't uh, know you everything. Shared, you've shared it. And it's a great it's a great story because uh, I think the idea here is um, we 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 want to live lives that are conscious. Yes. We don't want to live unconsciously and on automatic pilot. That's your point. Right. And, and you know, we, we want to live conscious lives. And meditation allows us to do that by revealing to us our thought processes. We slow them down enough through the practice of meditation, letting go of thought. We slow it down enough so that we can see our thought patterns. But the side effect is that we begin to feel that we that, that responsible for the ones that we put ourselves through and put others through. And so we begin to change those through training and altruism as the counteraction to the selfishness that causes so much of our suffering. Because if you go back to the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, that's what he talked about. 
He said, suffering's part of life. It's caused by clinging and fixation. We cling to stuff, we fixate on stuff, and that causes suffering. But the thing we cling to and fixate on most is ourselves. Mm. And, if, and so to stop that, that's the third noble truth, is the, is the end of suffering, to let go of that clinging and fixation. And then the fourth for, of the four noble truths is the path. And the path consists of this development of mindfulness and development of altruism so that we can begin to make better choices. So it's like that. Beautiful. This is, you know, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> oh, sure, Understood. but we're already at one twenty, and I, I, we're only oh, supposed sure. to talk yeah, an no, hour. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could go on forever because we're having a really good time, and I appreciate your time. Uh, mm-hmm. And this has See. been a wonderful conversation. So thank you for being here. And if people want to know more about you, um, your website is at lamakathy with a k dot net. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's correct. All right, super. Um, so send me an email the next time you're in San Diego or Santa Monica and, uh, and maybe we'll get together and have tea. Not that I'm calling you Mara. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe I'll just come see you teach. I'll send you a text message saying, uh, Mara reporting for tea. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. no, and I appreciate this opportunity because it is, uh, this is, uh, to me, these are incredibly worthwhile topics and being able to talk about stuff that's important, uh, what, what better use can you make of your time? So that's all, that's very good. Thank you. Uh, and I appreciate it. And I, I hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer.